You are listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F. the Oracle of the Action Network and Rotoviz. Welcome to the April 27th, 2018 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, an owner of Rotoviz, a PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR main event, one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at Rotodoc. Nick, how's it going? Matt, I'm doing great. It's uh, another restrictor plate weekend, and, and you know how much I love restrictor plate racing. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. Talladega, uh, we've already seen some some crazy things happen this weekend, which I'm sure we'll get into. But, uh, yeah, I mean, restrictor plate racing is the best because that's where you can really put a lot of uh, uh, exploitative well, – well, not exploitative, but a lot of uh, ways to exploit the DFS field, I should say, in uh, DraftKings this weekend um, just by – you know, exploding the over or underconfidence uh, of the market in certain drivers. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's a great way, great, great weekend to multi-enter. Uh, if you're a casual player, maybe, you know, try a few more entries and, and you know, try to avoid, uh, you know, some drivers that might be, have too much exposure or, or get on some drivers that have too little exposure. That's what we always do at the races and uh looking back at daytona the daytona 500 we definitely had some of those situations so uh, i wouldn't be surprised to see more of that uh this weekend all right uh as you mentioned a restrictor plate race that basically means that it is money making time um talladega a great race the second restrictor plate race of the season talk a bit about what we see at restrictor plate racing uh for people who don't know really what it is can you explain what it is and what it means for DFS this weekend. Yeah, so um, restrictor plate uh, racing is is a very different kind of racing than anything all year. NAS, because Talladega and Daytona are so big, uh, Daytona's two and a half miles, Talladega's two and two-thirds miles, uh, and, and they're also highly banked, whereas uh, you know Indianapolis and, and Pocono are both two and a half mile tracks, but they're flat tracks. The banking plus the size of these tracks means the cars go so fast without uh, doing anything to them that NASCAR actually does something to them to slow them down. And what they do is they put a restrictor plate, uh, which is literally a metal plate that has holes cut out in it, uh, to restrict the airflow into the engine. And what that does is it uh, limits the horsepower that these can cars these cars can turn, and subsequently, uh, if you limit the horsepower you're going to limit the speed of the car. So instead of the cars going 220 or 230 miles an hour, possibly into the corners, uh, you're only going to see them doing maybe a max of 205 this weekend in the corners. And I know it doesn't sound like, you know, 205 is still really fast. Yes, it is. Absolutely. But versus 230, imagine if a car got uh, out of control and T-boned at 230 miles an hour versus 200 miles an hour uh, is just that much more likely to, to lift off or, or to have serious incidences so uh, that way, you know, NASCAR can limit the speeds. And usually um, that uh, it doesn't limit the damage. Obviously, there's a lot of crashes at these tracks, but uh, definitely limits the number of injuries and, and possible airborne incidences for these cars. So uh, that's the reason NASCAR does that. What does it mean for the racing style? Well, because you're limiting the top speed of these cars, it means all the cars go the exact same top speed. There's nothing they can really do to kind of fine tune their car to get a separation of speed like we see at so many other tracks. Uh, all these cars go the exact same speed, and when they go in the exact same speed, they're going to be running together in a big pack. And what that does is that creates the, what we call the draft, uh, where you know if you if you think about driving down the highway and there's a truck, you know, a big semi in front of you, he's driving down the highway at 70 miles an hour. 
and he's pushing that air out of the way, and you can get up behind him, uh, and there's no air resistance right behind him, so you can actually get better fuel mileage uh, by by not having all that air resistance to to you know have your car go through, so your car doesn't work as hard. Well, the same thing happens here. In this case, though, uh, instead of getting better fuel mileage, you get better speed because there's less air resistance holding the car back from accelerating. So uh, it can suck up to the car in front of it, push the car in front of it, and then it subsequently goes faster. So the cars actually go faster together in a draft than they go single file or by themselves, I should say. Single file, actually, they go really fast. But but by themselves, they don't go as fast as if they're you know single file, three, four, five, six cars in a row. Uh, then they go faster and faster and faster because of this draft effect and then the pushing effect uh, of the cars behind the car that give to the cars in front and then the, it's kind of a you know a feedback loop there. Um, it, it, what that does again because they all go the same speed and because of the draft means all these cars stay in pack. And when all these cars are one big pack, if something goes wrong, it can go horribly wrong. Uh, it uh, you know it can go it can go so badly because um, you can get. 5, 10, 15, sometimes even over a 20-car wreck if, if the wreck starts at the front of the pack and the cars have nowhere to go. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it can it can go horribly wrong in an instant if uh, you get a big wreck and what we, what we call the big one um, partway through the race, any point in the race, especially if it started towards the front of the field there. Okay, so Talladega is a 2.67-mile trioval. It is one of two researcher play tracks that NASCAR races each year. You talked about plate racing, uh, but how is Talladega different from Daytona uh, in what we would expect to see with the racing? Yeah, there's a couple ways that it's different. Um, first, it's just different from Daytona in general, and that's a little bigger, a little wider, a little smoother. So these cars handle better, um, they get better grip, and so they go even faster. Obviously, um, it, they go faster just because of the bigger track, but if Daytona was the same size as Talladega, um, it would still be faster at Talladega because of higher banking, because of uh, the smoother track, because of the wider track as well. So um, handling is a little less of a premium at Talladega than it is at Daytona, but it still is a premium this weekend, especially with NASCAR's rule this year, eliminating the, the, you know, the minimum ride height rule. Uh, the car's handling is very much going to be at a premium this weekend. Uh, and it could make for a wild race, just like we saw at the Daytona 500. So in that sense, it's different from Daytona in that it's theoretically a little bit easier to handle, uh, a little bit easier for the you know the slower cars, I should say, um, air quote slower, to kind of maintain the pack instead of losing the draft. Handling is a little bit less of an issue. So usually we see a bigger pack here, we see fewer cars losing the draft uh, at Talladega. Um, the other way is different from Daytona, specifically the 500, which we had earlier this year, is in qualifying. Daytona, there's the dual qualifying races. And if you watch the dual qualifying races, you'll know one of the qualifying races just had like a ton of incidences. And so we had drivers like Brad Keselowski, Kyle Larson, Jimmy Johnson, Eric Almarola, Martin Truex Jr. starting all the way, you know, 25th or worse, sometimes even in the mid 30s. Uh, we don't have that this weekend at Talladega. We have a normal qualifying session, uh, single car qualifying. And so I think you're going to have fewer, you know, big name drivers starting all the way in the back. Um, I, and I think that'll change the dynamics of the slate because as we know, when we get all these big ones, we get all the cars in a pack, it does create a lot of randomness. And when there's a lot of randomness, uh, there's a lot of randomness in the projected finishing position. You really can't really, you can't predict where these cars are going to finish the race. Uh, what you can do is, you know, if a driver starts 
40th and he finishes 15th or a driver starts 10th and he finishes 15th, you know that for DFS purposes, the driver starting 40th and finishing 15th will have more points because of place differentials. So they'll actually have 25 more points than the car that starts, you know, 10th and finishes 15th if he starts 40th and finishes 15th. So uh, place differential does become king at these tracks. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, obviously DFS players know that that restrictor plate racing is king here. So we're going to talk about some of the ways to, to deal with that. But uh, it's it's very important. Place differential is super important at these races because of the randomness, because of uh, the number of cars. I tweeted out a stat earlier this week. I think it was yesterday. 40.3% of the uh, cars that enter a race at Talladega ending up end up having some kind of incident in the in the race, uh, you know, in April each year, and 40.1% have had incidences that have negatively affected their performance in the fall race. So essentially no difference between uh, the two Talladega races. So you can kind of just lump them together and say 40.2%, or let's just round it to 40% of the drivers are expected to have some sort of problem this weekend uh, that puts them out of competition. And so, you know, that's a that's a significant number. If there's 40 cars entered, you expect 16 of those cars to have some kind of problem that uh, doesn't let them hang with the main pack or puts them out of the race completely. So uh, that's that's the kind of the crazy nature of Talladega. Uh, and, um, you know, in that regard, it's similar to Daytona, but it's different from Daytona because of qualifying. You'll probably see fewer big names in the back, which definitely does change the dynamics of Talladega. Okay. Uh, much more to talk about, but before that, I want to remind you that you can get a listeners-only 30% discount to a special NASCAR pass through our NASCAR podcast homepage, rotaviz.com slash NASCAR podcast. With that pass, you get unlimited access to all of Nick's premium NASCAR content, and your subscription supports the pod. Also, if you are subscribing to the Rotaviz NASCAR package, then you have access to a lot of great tools and data for each race. With all of the research you are doing, you should play some NASCAR bets at mybookie.ag. They have a variety of future bets and head-to-head props for each race. I bet the props at MyBookie each week. You should check them out. The MyBookie NASCAR futures and props, they are fun, and they are a great way to leverage your Rotovis subscription and supplement your DFS action. So join MyBookie now, and you will get a 50% bonus with the promo code NASCAR. That is mybookie.ag. Play, win, and get paid. Okay, Nick. You talked about place differential and how important it is at restrictor plate tracks. The thing is, most NASCAR DFS players know by now that place differential is the primary thing that they are looking for. Uh, you know, so restrictor plate racing has changed uh, in the three plus years of NASCAR DFS. So at this point, how do you gain an edge on these types of races? Yeah, I mean it's definitely changed over over the three plus years of of, of this uh, you know this sport this contest uh, this type of, of fantasy sport because um, you know back in the day I remember when Dale Earnhardt Jr. Uh, you know at the Daytona 500 was starting right up front and I think he was 50% owned or something like that or 45% owned or, or 60% owned. I can't remember it was somewhere in that neighborhood and he was starting up front it made no sense to me and so I I. Even I had 15% Dale Earnhardt Jr. back then, which uh, was a lot from, you know, starting so far forward. That's more than I would recommend normally uh, these days. But uh, back then, we kind of hadn't really completely figured out optimal percentages and winning constructions. But, uh, 
Dale Earnhardt Jr. wrecked out, and I ended up uh, doing very well in the slate and uh, almost took down the win. I was leading going into the final lap of the Daytona 500, and then Eric Almirola passed Jimmy Johnson, and it put me down to eighth. Uh, but uh, I would have I would have won the Daytona 500 slate for uh, a lot of money, six figures, but alas, it wasn't meant to be. Either way, that's how it used to be. Uh, these days, you're not going to see that. You're going to see drivers starting in the top three or five or whatever. Uh, they're going to be no more than probably 15% owned, usually even less than that. Um, you know, you look at uh, you look at somebody like Joey Logano. He was 14% owned in the Daytona 500. Uh, he was kind of starting towards the front there. And, you know, we knew the Fords were going to be the cars to beat. We knew the Penske's had been just dominant or restricted plate races throughout the years. And uh, what we still saw was – uh, you know, very low ownership percentage numbers for these drivers. So uh, definitely the market has adapted to, um, you know, the, I guess the, the changing dynamics or the, the, I guess just figuring out restrictor plate racing. So, you know, I mentioned, uh, mentioned Joey Logano there. He started fifth and he was only 14% owned back then. He may have been 35% owned or something like that. Uh, we look at Denny Hamlin, He's always known as a great restrictor plate racer. He started second, and his ownership percentage was 13.5. So um, nowhere near the days of 35% ownership or anything like that. Uh, you're going to see far lower ownership percentages these days uh, for the drivers starting further forward. And so the field is adjusted. But what you also see now is very high ownership percentages for drivers starting in the back. Brad Keselowski, 57% owned in the Daytona 500. Kyle Larson, 525 uh, Eric Almirola, 46% owned. Jimmy Johnson, 46% owned. So those four big names all qualified in the 30s. If you see any big names qualifying in the 30s, you can pretty darn well assume they're going to be at least 45, 50% owned this weekend at Talladega. And uh, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, that's too much. Uh, 60% of the time, these drivers will finish the race. 40% of the time, they even won't fin even finish the race. So they should never be over 60% owned, um, maybe never over like 65% owned if you think some of the drivers are better at avoiding these incidences, which uh, I'll contend it's very, very hard to, to say there are. But there are a few drivers, I think, that have shown a statistically significant difference from expected over the years, but it's very few. Um, so ideally, you would never have any drivers be over 60 or 65% owned. And that would still mean they need to end up in the winning lineup. And that they all, even if they finish the race, they might not end up in the winning lineup. Maybe they take damage and still finish 22nd or something like that. Uh, and that's not enough to get them in the winning lineup. So even the best of the best drivers should not be over 50% owned. So uh, we you know we see the best of the best. Brad Keselowski and Kyle Larson were 53 and 57% owned in the Daytona 500. Too high. Uh, and guess what? Uh, neither of those drivers ended up, I think, in the winning lineup for the Daytona 500. Uh, I'm checking right here. Yeah, neither of them ended up in the winning lineup there. Um, Kyle Larson uh, was pretty close. He started 38th, finished 19th. Uh, but, uh, you know, there were other drivers that had better results. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's no guarantee that uh, just because a driver's starting way back there, and even if he finishes the race, that he's going to be in the winning lineup. So really 60 65% would be like the ceiling if we could guarantee they'd be in the winning lineup. But we can't even guarantee they'll be in the winning lineup. Uh, also, you know, maybe a little bit of salary con concern comes into play. Uh, usually it doesn't at restricted plate races. I know at the Daytona 500 it did because there were so many expensive drivers starting in the back. But, uh, yeah, I would say no more than 50% on any driver. And I do think uh, if we get some big names qualifying back there, you're going to see some 45, 50, 55% uh, owned drivers if something were to happen. And uh, we did have an incident that we'll talk about here uh, where I think it could affect qualifying a little bit. 
Yeah, let's get into that incident. So qualifying is on Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern. Per usual, we are recording this on Friday night, so qualifying has not taken place yet. But there was a notable incident uh, that has already prompted NASCAR to change a rule for this race. Jamie McMurray blew a tire, he got T-boned, and he flipped multiple times in Friday's second practice. So that prompted NASCAR to reduce the size of the holes in the restrictor plate from 56 uh, 64 of an inch to 55 64 which should reduce the horsepower and then ultimately the speed of the cars by a few miles per hour. So two-part question, what are the implications of the McMurray crash for DFS? And then what are the implications of the rule change for how the cars might race? Yeah, so um, to talk about the implications of the McMurray crash first, uh, obviously he backup car because there was damage everywhere on that car. Uh, a couple other cars got involved in it and took uh, Ryan Newman, Ty Dillon, and Daniel Suarez are all also going to backup cars. So th- those four drivers, McMurray, Newman, Dillon, Ty Dillon, I should say, not Austin Dillon, and Daniel Suarez uh, are all guaranteed to be starting in the back. So it doesn't really make sense for them to go out in qualifying. So we could potentially see those four drivers not even take a qualifying lap and actually start the race 40, 39, 38, and 37 or something like that. Uh, this weekend just because they don't want to go out there, run, blow a tire, and then wreck the backup car, uh, and then they would really be in trouble. So uh, I have a feeling, if not all of those guys, at least a couple of those guys will not take a qualifying lap, or, or uh, if they do, just ride around really slowly and uh, start near the back of the field. So you should see some big names, uh, whether it's McMurray or Newman, maybe Suarez or Dylan, uh, starting near the back, and they would be, you know, relative to drivers like uh, – I don't know, Timmy Hill, for example, they have much better plays starting in the 30s than a driver like Timmy Hill starting in the 30s. So um, that is something you could see. So we could have some super chalk from these drivers, uh, possibly some of these drivers here uh, starting way in the back. Uh, they're also going to be in backup cars. And I know people get concerned. Oh, you go to the rear of the field in the backup cars anywhere. They're all fine. All the backup cars are nearly these days, nearly, if not just as good as the primary car in the draft. It negates it even more. Uh, I think uh, there's no concern for me for any of these drivers in DFS, even if they were to go qual- make a qualifying lap, you know, and Ty Dillon were to make a qualifying lap in place, uh, you know, 26th or whatever. All of a sudden I'll get the questions. Well, should we avoid Ty Dillon because he's starting 26, but now he's going to starting the race in 40th with negative 14 plays differential. No, it's Talladega. He could be in the front of the field in like 10 laps. Don't worry about the backup. Don't worry about uh, starting in the rear. Uh, the only thing you should worry about is where their actual DraftKings qualifying starting position is. Uh, that is what you should worry about for race. Once the race gets going, all of it's going to get shuffled up anyway. So um, just worry about where their official starting position is to answer the second part of the question. What does the rule change mean? Uh, obviously, like you said, it'll slow the, the speeds down. Um, McMurray had just turned a lap of 204 miles an hour. It was, it was just under 204. It's 203.975 right before his accident. And they were going down the back straight. So uh, they probably were going, going even faster than that. Kislowski, um, estimated McMurray was probably going 210 miles an hour at the time of his crash. Uh, so that should reduce the speeds by about three to five miles an hour. Uh, what it'll do, if you reduce the speeds, you'll be able to handle a little bit better. So that's a good thing um, because the cars were definitely difficult to handle. But it also mean that it's going to even out the playing field a little bit more as well. 
which will make it easier to go two wide, three wide, et cetera, if the cars are handling just that much better and if the cars are a little more equal. So uh, I think it could, uh, you know, Brad Keselowski had, had again, had stated, um, you know, with the ways the cars were handling, if the drivers were going to go two or three wide, uh, it was going to be a disaster to survive the race. Um, you know, that was in the old speeds. Uh, so, you know, he really didn't want to see multiple lanes of racing. He wanted to see single file racing just to survive the race. And, uh, but now with the reduced speed, maybe the cars will handle a little bit better. Uh, but that also means maybe they can go two or three wide a little bit easier. So, um, you know, maybe it reduces the expectation of a crash just a tiny bit, but it could also just be mitigated by the fact that just like we saw in the Daytona 500, the cars got strung out and ran single file for a large number of laps before all hell broke loose again. Um, you know, we could have seen that as well. So I don't think it changes the expectations of a crash that much. But what I do think is it does maybe even out the playing field just that much more. Okay. And just to recap, the four guys who were caught up in that crash, McMurray, obviously, and then Suarez, Ty Dillon, and Ryan Newman, right? Yep, absolutely. So those four all went to backup cars. They will all be starting from the rear, regardless of if they qualify or not. So my expectation is that uh, some, if not all of them, will not make a qualifying lap, and they will start officially from the rear as well as unofficially from the rear. Okay, so you are thinking that some of those guys will be fairly chalky. Uh, are they going to figure into cash game strategy at all? Or I guess bigger question, what is your approach to cash games this weekend? Yeah, I mean, definitely if you if you see a driver like McMurray, even Newman, um, probably both Dylan and Suarez as well. But uh, if you see some of these big name drivers starting in the back, you're playing them cash. Period. I'd much rather have, uh, you know, um, I guess Jamie McMurray in cash than, like we said, Timmy Hill in cash or something like that. So uh, you pick the best drivers starting in the back. Uh, occasionally you can, it can almost go a little too far though. You know, so if everybody's playing Jamie McMurray and he has a 60% chance or it's not 60%, but 40% chance of having a problem, right. Uh, there gets a point where if he's 80, 90% owned in cash, it, he does become an interesting cash fade. Uh, or maybe what you do instead is maybe you fade somebody like Daniel Suarez and then, uh, pivot over to maybe somebody like, um, you know, Brendan Gaughan or Elliot Sadler names we've seen in the past, uh, something like that where you can uh, get away from, Jamie McMurray is one of the great restrictor players in his era uh, with multiple restrictor play wins. But, uh, you know, maybe instead you pivot off of somebody like a Daniel Suarez or, or a Ty Dillon over to somebody like uh, a Cole Witt or, or maybe a, um, you know, Michael McDowell, something like that in cash games. If they're starting all the way in the back. So that could be an interesting cash game strategy. But by and large, you're taking the chalkiest driver starting way in the back. And if you're not starting way in the back, uh, don't play them. Like it doesn't make sense to play Danny Hamlin if he's qualified 21st in cash. It just doesn't. Uh, I know it's in the back half of the field, but it just doesn't make sense to play Danny Hamlin qualified 21st, even though he is Danny Hamlin uh, to, in cash. You're playing drivers usually starting 30th or worse, and you're usually playing the best drivers. But I do think it can make sense to pivot off of some of the borderline names there, uh, borderline maybe Ty Dillon or Daniel Suarez is, or is a borderline name, and pivot to somebody a little less uh, chalky in cash just because of the randomness of the race. But that's by and large, my cash game strategy is pick the best driver starting in the back, maybe make a small pivot or two. Sort of like a, a sound draft strategy. Just pick the best players. I mean, isn't that as easy as it is in fantasy football? You just pick the best players. Yeah. Uh, okay. So besides just picking the best players, 
uh, best drivers starting at the back. Uh, what are some of the GPP ideas that you have for the race? Yeah, well, we always, like I said, we always talk ownership percentage at these restrictor plate races. And um, I think it's going to be no different this weekend, usually at Talladega, because we don't see all these big names qualifying in the back. The ownership percentage is a little more flattened out because you've got the worst driver starting in the back, the medium driver starting in the middle, and the better driver starting a little further forward. Uh, and you don't expect, you know, Timmy Hill or Ross Chastain to, to win the race or anything like that. I mean, certainly they have a better chance of at least maintaining the pack and, and uh, ending up in the winning lineup. But, uh, you know, it, it evens out the ownership percentages a little bit. So you're not going to see as many drivers, 55% owned, 50% owned, something like that. Uh, you still will see some high ownership. But even then, you want to exploit ownership percentages. Um, you want to exploit them in the 20s. You want to exploit them in the 30s. You even want to exploit them, as we'll talk about, inside the top 20. And this is where, like I said, one of the changes from Daytona uh, is I think everybody thinks for strict plate racing, start drivers in the back. That's not quite the case here at Talladega. So I've got some interesting stats behind that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the general idea of restricted plate racing is because there's such a high degree of randomness. I mean, if you look at my model this weekend, uh, I don't even talk about what stats go in the model because it, it's basically, uh, you know, year-to-date performance and then are you good at restricted plate racing, yes or no. Those are the only two things that go into the model, and they only describe uh, about 8 to 9% of the finishing position variance in, in restricted plate races at Talladega. So the model is not worthless. It's, it's useful in that it can pick out some drivers a little bit better than others. Not, not that much though. Uh, but where it's useful in is that uh, you can kind of just get an idea of what the DraftKings points should be for the randomness of this race. You know, uh, you can get an idea that like, okay, well, even uh, you know, even a driver like Ross Chastain is projected for around 40 DraftKings points, whereas a driver like Denny Hamlin may only be projected for 36 or something like that. So why would you go way over on Denny Hamlin when you could just pivot to Ross Chastain, who's 30% less owned or something like that, uh, theoretically. So that's kind of where the model's useful this weekend. It's useful in the optimizer. Um, but uh, by and large, the, there's a lot of randomness in this race, and you shouldn't be looking at anybody saying they can predict how this race is going to go because nobody knows. What you can do is you can exploit the under or overconfidence in the market, and uh, that's what we're going to do this weekend. And we're going to do it because, like I said, the theory around restricted plate racing has evolved, but it's almost evolved – too far now where people want to build rosters that are too safe and too many times in the in the 30s or the late 20s uh so uh that is still a good approach but don't get me wrong that's you're, where you're gonna have most of your drivers coming from those range that range but uh it has gone overboard i think a little bit in in the past couple of restrictor plate contests and so i think one way to be a little exploitative is to get away from the you have to play uh, or you can't play drivers starting further forward. You can. Uh, I've done the work on it, and you absolutely can play drivers starting further forward this weekend. Okay, well, let's talk about that a little bit more. Uh, you've talked about ownership percentages, and this weekend you have uh, something new for the Road of His subscribers, Game Theory Optimal or GTO ownership percentages. Talk about that. Yeah, I'm super excited for this. Um, it was an idea that I started uh, you know, playing around with during the Daytona 500. I was just doing some work. I should have been creating lineups, but uh, I, when I was creating lineups, I was trying to figure out like what, how much percentage should I use this driver, that driver. And I got to the point where I was looking at things, and I kind of all just clicked where I was like, I can actually create GTO ownership percentages based off starting position because um, – and 
Daytona 500 was a little bit an exception with all the big names qualifying in the back and salary actually did matter a little bit more, uh, strangely enough. But in a race like Dega, where strategy or salary, I should say, doesn't really matter. Uh, that basically means that, uh, you know, the only thing that matters is, um, just getting in the winning lineup. So you can calculate the rate that, uh, each starting position has had a driver in the winning lineup or in the optimal lineup, I should say, not necessarily the winning lineup because, uh, sometimes the, the winning lineup wasn't hit, but you can calculate the time, the number of times that a starting position, uh, was in the optimal lineup at Talladega. And so we've got, 26 races since 2005, since NASCAR kept scoring loop data and all of that. And uh, that means we can calculate DraftKings points for all those races going back. Even though DraftKings didn't exist, then you could calculate the, the past scoring just like we could for fantasy football, for example. Um, you know, We didn't have fantasy football in the 70s, but we know if a guy got a touchdown and we had played fantasy football in the 70s, we would have given him six points. Um, so one time in 26 races has uh, the the driver started on the pole ended up in the optimal lineup. Um, twice in it has the driver starting second ended up in the winning lineup um, in in Talladega. So two out of 26 times. So you can do that for all of them. Find out the percentage of time they're in the winning lineup. Well, the winning lineup means you need to be in the 100th percentile, right? So then you need to figure out. Uh, but you know, there's DraftKings has uh, the top. 22.3% or so get paid uh, in, the, in the main GPP this weekend. So what does it take for a driver to finish in the top 22.3 percentile, uh, you know, 77th percentile or better, something like that? Uh, and how many times does that happen per starting position? You can calculate all those things, uh, then smooth out the data, right? Because um, it doesn't make sense that the driver starting 11th has had that happen 15 times and the driver starting 12th has happened five times and then the driver starting 13th has happened uh, 11 times, so 12, 5, and 11. Like, there's nothing intrinsic to it being uh, 12 versus, you know, 11 versus 12 versus 13th. It's uh, so you smooth it out, smooth out that data, and then uh, apply that to each of the the payout structures and ex, you know expected payouts, and you can come up with optimal ownership percentages for uh, this weekend slate. So I've done that for the main slate. I haven't done that, you know, for the biggest GPP contest. You could theoretically calculate it for any contest. I'm just calculating it for the biggest contest. And we're going to post that behind the road of his paywall with the article this weekend. Uh, and so just to, to give you a little hint, the uh, number one qualifying position, the GTO percentage this weekend is 6.6%. So whoever's on the poll, uh, the optimal percentage you should have, if you're, multi, if you're multi-entering, it would be 6.6. Now, obviously, that's going to change based off who the driver is uh, and things like that. You know, if it's Brad Keselowski on the poll, maybe optimal is more like 7.5 or 8%. And if it's, uh, you know, Cole Custer on the poll, maybe the optimal percentage is like zero. So, uh, but it gives you a baseline to start with, and then you can kind of adjust from there. Uh, so that's what we have at Rotoviz this weekend. I think it's really cool. Uh, all the percentages add up to 600%, right, because you can have 600% exposure total. And um, I think what you'll find interesting is uh, the ownership percentages are probably not what you think they are for GTO. And that's because you're calculating also in just these min caches, these middle caches and stuff like that, not just the winning lineup. So you're trying to maximize your expected value. Uh, and that is what is going to change these optimal ownership percentages. And, and again, when you look at these and you see, you're going to be like, wow, really? Uh, you're not going to think it, but it, it does end up making sense. Uh, when you look at the past numbers, I mean, like I said, uh, out of 26 past Talladega races, 19 times has a driver starting 10th or better ended up in the winning lineup. So it doesn't make sense that we'd only have one driver uh, starting 10th or better maybe in every other lineup. It, you know, it, it basically happens 
almost once per race, not quite. So, you know, you should have uh, in mo- most of your lineups, at least one driver starting in the top 10, sometimes more. We'll talk about that. But uh, yeah, I think uh, it's, it's, it's really cool. Uh, and I'm excited to post that behind the road of his paywall this weekend for all you guys to read. Okay. So with all of the focus on choosing drivers from the back, can you talk about some of the stats that point to the idea that it uh, might be good to avoid a, you know, back only strategy for GPPs? Yeah. So um, it's definitely good to avoid a back only strategy. I think if we, you know, like I said, if we look at the number of drivers starting 10th or better who ended up in the winning lineup, it's 19. If we restrict that, and uh, that was pun intended because we're at restricted plate racing. Uh, but if we restrict that to the gen six car, uh, and drivers starting 10th or better, it's happened 12 times in the last 10 races, uh, in the 10 races of the Gen 6 era. So more than once per race, more than one driver per race over the last five years, 10 races, has uh, a driver started 10th or better ended up in the optimal lineup. Uh, and that's the optimal lineup. It might not even be the winning lineup because uh, the winning lineup you know, might not be the optimal lineup just because uh, it's so rare to hit on the exact optimal lineup at a plate track. But the idea is it's okay to play a driver starting inside the top 10, even two sometimes. Uh, if we if we limit it to just the 40 car era, which is um, 2016 and 2017 at Talladega, we can see there have been four races and four times has a driver started inside the top 10. So basically once per race. Uh, it actually was two, then zero, then one, then one. Uh, well, I should say in order, it was zero, then one, then one, then two. Uh, for the last four races at Talladega. So it's okay to play two drivers. It's okay to play one driver starting inside the top 10. It's absolutely okay. Um, what I think is also very interesting, if we limit it to, or if we restrict it uh, to the Gen 6 era, you have 12 drivers that started inside the top 10 in those 10 races, but from 20th to 11th, so 11 to 20, it, it only is seven drivers who ended up in the optimal lineup. So more drivers ended up in the optimal lineup starting inside the top 10 than from 11th to 20th, 12 versus seven. Now I know it's a pretty small sample size, so we maybe don't read too much into it, but the idea is, uh, you, uh, yes, it's okay to start drivers inside the top 10 here. If you think, uh, you know, they're going to end up in the winning lineup. And usually the drivers that are starting inside the top 10 that end up in the winning lineup are big names. Let me read them off to you. These 12 drivers that have happened in the last 10 races, Joey Logano, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Brad Keselowski, Jimmy Johnson, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Matt Kenseth, Brad Keselowski, Brad Keselowski, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Jamie McMurray, Joey Logano, and Kyle Busch. So big, big, big names. So you're usually playing the big names that start inside the top 10 because they're the ones that have a shot at winning the race. Uh, I think it's funny, um, you know, of all of these, uh, of all these drivers that started inside the top 10 to end up in the winning lineup that I just talked about, those 12, they all finished uh, third or better, except Joey Logano finished fourth when he started third, but he led 59 laps and had six fastest laps. And then Matt Kenseth started sixth, finished eighth, but he led 142 laps that one year, which is very rare at a plate track. But uh, by and large, you know, they need to finish first or second if they're starting inside the top 10. So if you're picking a driver who's starting inside the top 10, you want to pick a driver who has a chance to lead laps, 
there was a chance to win the race. Um, the fewest laps led among those drivers, those 12 drivers, was seven uh, by Brad Keselowski when he won the race. And then the next fewest was 12 by Brad Keselowski when he won the race. So if they don't lead many laps, they need to win the race. If they do lead a lot of laps, it's okay if they finish second or third or fourth or whatever. Uh, but uh, it is okay to pick drivers starting inside the top 10 if they have a chance to win the race or lead a lot of laps. That bare area between 11 and 20 is where I think uh, it actually intuitively makes sense. Uh, you're not seeing as many drivers like Keselowski or Earnhardt qualify in that range. Um, you're seeing drivers, you know, maybe more like your your Paul Menards or your Eric Almarolos or your Clint Boyer. There's drivers that, are, that could be maybe finish inside the top 10, but usually don't dominate or win. Maybe Clint Boyer is not a great example because he's won a few of these races. But your drivers like Paul Menard or Austin Dillon or something like that, well, Dillon just won a Daytona 500. But uh, you get what I'm saying. So maybe these middle name drivers qualify in the middle. They're not good enough to win the race. They're not good enough to lead laps here. Uh, and that's maybe why that range is so barren over the past five years. And then you get into the 20s. Uh, and I think another interesting stat pops up. If you look at drivers starting um, between 21st and 30th, you have 17 drivers. And if you look at 31st to uh, 43rd, of course, because we're, we're in this uh, era where there's still 43, you have 24. So you, like I said, you have uh, 17 and 24. That makes sense. If you just restrict it, to the 40 driver era, uh, and you look at you know 22nd to 30th, 11 drivers, and then 31st to 40th, six drivers. So again, maybe some exploitation there. Uh, these super slow drivers starting way in the 30s, maybe they just uh, aren't good enough, and uh, maybe the drivers you know starting uh, 21st, 22nd to 30th have, qualify a little bit better on on average because they are better, and if they avoid the wrecks. Um, they usually finish higher as well. So uh, it, maybe the exploitation there is to play drivers starting uh, 21st to 30th more so than 31st to 30th uh, in the in the in the, you know, the more recent era here. So my GTO percentages are based off of since 2005, but maybe some of the more recent data shows that it's even easier to, for drivers inside the top 10 or inside the, the 20s range to finish better than their counterparts in 11 to 20 or, or 31 to 30. Okay, you typically have four general guidelines for restrictor plate racing. Uh, what are those, and uh, do they differ at all at Talladega versus Daytona? Yeah, so at Daytona, my rule of thumb was don't play any drivers starting inside the top three, or, or if you do, make it very few. Um, it still kind of applies, as we've talked about. Uh, you know, obviously, um, to end up in the winning lineup, it's very hard. Only four times has it happened since 2005 at Talladega, which is 26 races. But that four out of 26 is a lot better. You know, that's like uh, two out of 13, whereas it's happened two out of uh, 39 times, essentially, uh, at Daytona. So um, 39 is three times 13. So it's like three times as likely for a driver starting in the top three to end up in the winning lineup at Talladega than at Daytona. So uh, that rule of thumb is still play very few uh, drivers starting inside the top three. But if you do, make sure the drivers that you think can absolutely win the race. Um, you know, if Alex Bowman starting second, probably not going to uh, be have, have a lot of him, if any, just because I think there's probably better plate racers out there. And, you know, Alex Bowman did win the pole for the Daytona 500. And that's why I bring that up is he's probably a good fade candidate uh, if he does, you know, put the car on the pole again. Um, my next rule of thumb. Play uh, one, maybe sometimes two drivers starting inside the top 20. That rule of thumb a little bit changes for Talladega. You can play two drivers comfortably. 
starting inside the top 20. In fact, uh, like I said, it's happened. Um, if you look at drivers starting inside the top 20, it's happened 40 times in 26 races. So an average of, you know, right around one and a half per race. So it makes some one driver lineups, makes some two driver lineups, makes some zero driver lineups. That certainly is a possibility that nobody inside the top 20 ends up in the winning lineup. And you can even sprinkle in three drivers inside the top 20. However, if you do, that third driver should start 15th or worse. Never have all three drivers when it, it's happened three times in six races that three drivers have started inside the top 20. But all three times there was a driver starting between 15th and 20th uh, as one of those three. So, um, you know, that's kind of the second rule of thumb is is uh, the number of drivers starting inside the top 20. The, the third rule of thumb is to make sure to exploit ownership percentages. So uh, obviously you want to you want to exploit ownership percentages at, uh, you know, at these at these races. Um, I think it's just I think it's really important to exploit ownership percentage, uh, even for the drivers in the back. And that's just something you kind of always want to do there. And uh, yeah, I think uh, I think those are the first three rules of thumb. The fourth rule of thumb. Hold up. I'm loading it up here. Just give me one second is uh, I forgot it off the top of my head. So you're going to have to edit this out. <laughs> I'm not going to edit this out. People are just going oh, no. to listen to all this. Right, all right. Oh, the fourth rule of uh, the fourth rule of thumb. Um, like I said, fade the front three uh, drivers in the top 20. Uh, then is driver starting 25th or better? Um, you know, that kind of just goes out the window at town. Yeah, so uh, it really becomes three rules. That's why I forgot it is because it's the neglected rule of thumb at Talladega. It kind of goes out the window. Um, so, like I said, if you're if you're playing three drivers inside the top 15, um, you're still probably wanting to pick the rest of your drivers from the back. If you're playing two drivers inside the top 15, um, you know maybe it's okay if you play the rest of your drivers 20th or worse. But uh, really, the idea is if you're getting um, you know multiple drivers inside the, the top 15. Uh, or the top, inside the top 20, for example, then more of your drivers will be starting further in the back. And uh, the, I guess the thing here would be don't go overboard on the drivers starting 30th or worse, especially if they're not very good. Uh, so I think we've kind of learned that lesson in recent years. Now, obviously, you still want some exposure to them because they can end up in the winning lineup. In one year, we saw J.J. Yaley, and uh, I think it was Joey Gase or, or, or somebody like that, or Josh Wise that was one of the Jays uh, that's very – uh, uncommon end up in the winning lineup with Colwitt and uh, you know the, the salary used was thirty nine thousand dollars or something like that. So certainly you can still use drivers starting in the thirties. Uh, just don't go crazy on them. And when I think uh, you know uh, that would be my new rule of thumb number four would be don't go crazy on those guys. Uh, replacing my other rule of thumb number four from Daytona. Okay, can you talk about strategy for single entry or three max entry restrictor plate racing? Yeah, this is this is super interesting because, uh, you know, I think we will see in some of these um, still want to get, you know, if Jamie McMurray starts 40th, they still want to get him in there and, the, you know, starting 37th or 8th or 9th or 40th or whatever. And that's totally fine. But if you're three, three max, maybe enter him one time because right 60 uh, percent of the time he'll finish the race, not even uh, that amount of the time. You know, will he end up in the wing lineup? And then he's probably going to go over-owned relative to it because it's, uh, you know, people like to be safer in these single or three-entry max type things. So maybe play a driver like that's super chalk, only one out of the three, or in single entry, fade them and pivot to a, maybe a lesser-owned driver. Um, as you start to go further forward, I think it's okay to actually be a little chalkier with your sessions. Daniels, your Laganos, your Keselowski's, your, uh, your big names there that you think can win, maybe a Clint Boyer or uh, a Kyle Busch or something like that. 
it's okay to be a little chalkier going further forward because fewer people are actually playing those drivers anyway because they are starting forward. So I think um, I like actually going maybe a little bit more with the big names starting further forward and then fading the bigger names starting further back in single entry or three max. Okay. Any other final pro tips for GPPs or cash games? Um, I wouldn't really say any other final pro tips other than make sure you check those GTO percentages. Uh, I put, put some good work into them this weekend. It's really exciting. And I, I keep thinking like they have to be wrong. They have to be wrong because I can't believe these numbers, but they're actually right. Uh, they're actually mathematically statistically based off of what's happened in Talladega in the past. Correct. And uh, I think it's really cool. You may want to give a little bit more weight to recent years. So maybe you adjust the GTO percentage a little bit, your own personal feelings of how things have happened recently. And then you adjust them again for drivers. But uh, that'll give you very much an idea of, of you know, uh, what you should expect to, to own of a driver. If you if you see, like I said, the driver starting first, I gave you that uh, I gave everybody that number. It should be 6.6 .6 GTO. Uh, if it's Brad Keselowski, maybe more. If it's if it's Alex Bowman, maybe less. Right. So uh, kind of use your intuition around those numbers and uh, come up with some good ownership percentages that work for you. Also, try to make sure you predict the market. We will have the ownership percentage projections out. Um, so, you know, we'll projected and GTO, you can kind of get a leverage number from that then. Uh, and, uh, you know, things like that. And then you also want to adjust, like I said, for um, for the quality of the driver. So maybe GTO says one thing, the quality of the driver you maybe give them a 5 or a 10% bump depending on uh, where and who they are. Uh, and then you can compare it to their expected and you can kind of get leverage numbers there. So uh, that'll be kind of cool. You can calculate all those yourself because I'll have the GTO numbers and I'll have the uh, the ownership percentage projections out at Rotoviz. And that's what it's all about, man. It's about being able to predict the market and uh, knowing what is optimal, statistically optimal, because nobody can predict this race. But you can predict over the long run what should happen and what the market will do. Okay, I actually have a follow-up question. Uh, thinking about this more from the perspective of, uh, well, myself, who will have to write uh, a prop piece for this race later this weekend. It seems as if, um, because there is so little in terms of the performance data we have, so like year-to-day performance and then restrictor plate racing, but all of that is still relatively insignificant in a predictive way for what we will see in this race that for things like props and betting, I mean, do you pretty much just take like the, the long odds on, on stuff like this? Yeah. I mean, for the most part, I think you do. Obviously if, uh, you know, if you have like Kyle push versus, um, you know, versus Ross Chastain, you never will, but like, let's say it's a uh, Kyle Busch is, uh, minus 300 and Ross Chastain is plus you know, 250 or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I'd probably take that. Now, if it's, uh, if it's something like Kyle Busch minus 120 versus, uh, you know, Kevin Harvick plus 105, I'm not necessarily sure I take, you know, the Harvick side of that. Maybe right. I just take the Kyle Busch side. But, uh, I think in extreme situations, absolutely you want to exploit that. Uh, but, um, just because 60% of the drivers finished, but 40% of the drivers, and you never know who it'll be. Um, by and large, it's random. Uh, there are, you know, a few drivers exceptionally good at avoiding problems, uh, statistically significantly good at avoiding problems, but, uh, by and large, it's pretty random. Um, so, you know, I think for prop decks, the way you want to approach it is if you see something outline, you probably want to take, uh, you know, if you see something crazy there, because there shouldn't be much confidence in, in any of these props this weekend. Uh, if, if Vegas does give you a lot of confidence in, in any prop bets, take 
same for bet to win. Uh, Paul Menard opened this week at plus 5,000. So, yeah, so 50 to 1, essentially. Uh, that, I took that immediately. It was, uh, 50 to 1. I took him at 44 to 1 for the Daytona 500, and he performed very well. I had a chance to win it near the end of the race. Uh, I took all oh, at 60 to 1 at Daytona 500, right? These are the kinds of things you want to find are, are some of these huge values to win as well. Because, uh, the odds aren't as long as you think. David Ritten won this race in a front row motorsports car. So, uh, you know, I think that says a lot about what can happen at Talladega. Okay. Good stuff. I, th- I think that show deserved the good stuff. That's that's what I'm going to say. I think so. I think so. I'm excited, man. I'm excited about these GTO ownerships and uh, approach Talladega a little bit differently this weekend than I've approached it in the past. Yeah, so everyone be sure to check that out. And that is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt F. The Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On the Daily, the Rotoviz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by Rotoviz Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Rotoviz Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS.